Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a little package of uh, amendments that have come out from the ISB. And to help me through that, I'm joined by uh, the amazing Scott Bandura. Welcome back, Scott. Thank you. I think we last spoke when we were doing our COVID series. So hopefully something a bit more positive for us to chat about this time. So (laughs) I'm sure we'll come back to that at some point. So in May, while COVID was going on, the ISB was very busy and they issued, like I said, almost like a little bundle. I've never seen so so many amendments to IFRS issued all in one go. And that had narrow scope amendments and some other amendments as well. So could you just give us a highlight of what was in there? Sure, it it was quite a few things. So the package of amendments includes narrow scope amendments to three standards, IAS 16, 37, and IFRS 3, as well as the board's annual improvements to another four standards, IFRS 1, 9, 16, and IAS 41. And can I tell you my claim to fame, Scott Bandura? I was the one that wrote in about the IAS 41 uh, change I wanted. I know, I'm so excited. I should be asking you the question then. Well, I asked for the word tax to be deleted. Done. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, I don't think we cover that there. So I've just obviously added lots of value. So maybe let's start. Some of them are big and some of them are maybe like my one, a little bit smaller. So if we start with the IS-16 one, and obviously the principle in IS-16 is you know, what costs you can include in the asset, what you can what you can capitalise. And it's all about what costs are attributable to bringing the asset into the location and condition necessary for it to be capable of operating in the manner of intended by management. God, that's a mouthful. And one of those costs that it talks about is testing whether the asset is functioning properly. So what change did they make on that? Well, there was some diversity in practice as to how cost of testing an asset uh, was accounted for. So prior to the effective date of the amendment, some entities chose to record both the cost of testing the asset and the related revenues against the carrying amount. So taking a simple example, if an entity incurred $90 in costs to generate $100 of revenues during the testing phase, most would have recorded a net reduction to the carrying amount of the asset under development of $10, the $100 in revenue less than $90 in costs. However, some other entities might have recorded uh, revenue during the testing phase and recorded the related cost in the P&L. So, for example, if the entity had such a policy, they would recognize $100 as revenue during the testing phase and $90 of expenses in the P&L. The amendment aims to reduce the diversity in practice by prohibiting an entity from deducting from the cost of an item of PP&E any proceeds received from selling items produced while the entity is preparing the entity the asset for its intended use. So for example, the proceeds from selling samples produced by a machine when testing it to see if it's functioning properly should together with the cost of producing them be recognized in profit and loss. An entity will use IES2 inventories to measure the cost of those items. However, cost will not include depreciation of the asset being tested because it is not yet ready for its intended use. Okay, so big change there is the proceeds from selling anything from testing, P&L, don't go against the asset. So does the amendment actually clarify what is meant by testing whether the asset is functioning properly? 
Because I can imagine you can interpret that in different ways. There were some comments on this uh, because sometimes companies traditionally thought of this as being met at the commercial operation date for the asset. But the amendment clarifies that the financial performance of the asset is not relevant to the assessment of when it is uh, ready. So only technical and physical performance should be considered. An asset, therefore, might be capable of operating as intended by management and subject to depreciation before it has achieved the level of financial performance expected by management. For example, it would generally not be appropriate to define when an asset is ready ready for its intended use by referring only to its long-term expected margins. So let's say the long-term margin on an asset is expected to be 30% when it's fully operational, it wouldn't be appropriate based on the amendment to look solely to the margins currently being generated as a benchmark for when the asset is uh, operating in the manner intended by management. Okay, so I suppose one of, not just for your huge brain, Scott, one of the reasons I asked you to talk to me about this today is I like to think of you as Mr. Mining as well as Mr. Oil and Gas. And I (laughs) hear that this is big in the mining world. So tell us why. Why Why do mining companies care? Well, Mining projects, as you know, are often quite large and complex. So some mines will take a long period of time to ramp up to their full operations. In my experience, prior to the amendment, most mining companies had a policy to recognize revenues during the startup of a mine against the carrying amount of the asset. So we do think that mining will be one of the most impacted industries. And as mentioned, depreciation or depletion is not booked during the period prior to the asset being considered ready for its intended use. So there could be situations, in fact, where the cost recorded during the testing phase are actually lower than the cost expected during the production phase, where depletion is expected to be a significant component of those ongoing costs. So this likely will put more pressure on both the nature of the cost apart from depletion that would be recorded in the PL during the testing phase and the timing of when an asset is ready for its intended use. In particular, mining companies should take note of the ISB's comment on the financial performance not being the determinant of when commercial operations commence from an accounting perspective. I would also note that this amendment only modifies IS-16, which is the PP&E standard. The amendment did not make any changes to IFRS 6, uh, and therefore we expect that most mining companies will continue to follow their existing accounting policies with respect to exploration and evaluation assets. Okay, so only stuff in IS-16 we need to worry about, but mining... If you if you haven't realised it's out there, then this this could be something that impacts you. Always key to know about the date. When is it effective? When do people have to start worrying? So this amendment is effective for annual reporting periods beginning on or after the 1st of January 2022 with earlier application permitted. It's partly retrospective uh, because it is retrospective for PP&E brought to the location and condition necessary for them to be capable of operating in the manner intended by management on or after the beginning of the earliest period presented in the financial statements in which the entity first applies the amendments. Therefore, entities should start to think about their approach for this, uh, for ongoing projects if they're expected to remain in the development phase in comparative periods. Okay, so although it feels like we've got a few more years before it's effective, you should start thinking about it now because it's going to impact your comparatives as well. Okay, brilliant. So that's that's amendment number one in the lovely present from the ISB. Coming on to number two, they changed something in IS 37. 
and to do with the definitions of onerous contracts, I think. Could you tell us what they've changed there? Sure. Uh, well, IS 37 defines an onerous contract as one in which the unavoidable cost of meeting the entity's obligations exceed the economic benefits to be received under that contract. Unavoidable costs are the lower of the net cost of exiting the contract and the cost to fulfill the contract. So what the amendment does is clarify that the meaning of cost to fulfill a contract uh, comprise the incremental cost of fulfilling that contract. So for example, direct labor and materials and an allocation of other costs that relate directly to fulfilling the contracts. For example, an allocation of the depreciation charge for an item of PP&E used to fulfill the contract. The amendment also clarifies that before a separate provision for an onerous contract is established, an entity recognizes any impairment losses that occurred on assets used in fulfilling the contract rather than just assets dedicated to that contract. Okay, so it's really clarifying what costs effectively we consider when we look at cost to fulfill the contract. Um, maybe as clarifying it, it could be a bit broader than people are doing now so do you think we're going to see higher onerous contract provisions in entities books it's possible uh, because previously some entities might have only included incremental cost and the cost to fulfill the contract on the other hand there might be some mitigation if, if more assets are subject to impairment prior to recognition of the onerous contract provision because as you know the ISB also clarified that the requirement to recognize any impairment losses applies to all assets whose cost would be considered in assessing whether the contract is onerous. Okay, so potentially higher, but obviously we've got the impairment point um, there as well. Mm -hmm. Then we move on to IFRS 3, so our business combination standards. I shouldn't say this, but maybe it's not the most exciting amendment we've ever seen in our <laughs> lives. It feels maybe a little bit more like housekeeping, um, but I could be wrong. Can you tell us what they've done there around the, the the conceptual framework and what other amendments they've made? Sure. So the board added a new exception in IFRS 3 for liabilities and contingent liabilities. The exception specifies that for some types of liabilities and contingent liabilities, an entity applying IFRS 3 should instead refer to IS 37, which is the provisions contingent liabilities and contingent asset standards, or IFRIC 21, which is the levies standard rather than the 2018 conceptual framework. Without the new exception that the ISB built in, it was perceived that some might have recognized liabilities in a business combination that would that would not be recognized under IS 37. And therefore, immediately after the acquisition, the entity might have had to de-recognize such liabilities and recognize a gain in PL that did not depict an economic gain. So therefore, the board um, made this clarification. And they also clarified as part of this that the acquirer should not recognize contingent assets as defined in IS 37 at the acquisition date. There you go. It's juicier than I thought it was. It was actually, you know, it's getting rid of a sense, you know, making it more sensible. That sounds good. OK, then we come on to the other thing in the package. So we had those three narrow scope amendments and then they put the annual improvements in for years 2018 to 2020. What standards were affected there? So IFRS 1, IFRS 9, IFRS 16 and your favourite IS 41. Yes. Come on, tell me all about them. <laughs> I've told them about sure. IS 41, deleted the word tax. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, IFRS 1 allows an exemption if a subsidiary adopts IFRS at a later date than its parent. So the subsidiary can measure its assets and liabilities at the carrying amounts that would be included in its parent's consolidated financial statements based on the parent's date of transition to IFRS. What the amendment does is it extends the exemption to cumulative translation differences in order to reduce costs for first-time adopters. So that's the amendment to IFRS 1. IFRS 9, there was an amendment to clarify that costs or fees paid to third parties within a, within a modification of a, a, a loan, for example, should not be included in the 10% test for derecognition of financial liability. So costs paid to third parties would include, for example, costs paid to lawyers um, or other parties other than the lender. Um, so when performing the 10% test for derecognition of financial liabilities, important to, to take this amendment into account. The board also amended one of the illustrative examples to IFRS 16 to remove the illustration of payments from the lessor relating to leasehold improvements. And finally, uh, IS 41, the board has removed the requirement for entities to exclude cash flows for taxation when measuring the fair value under IS 41. And this was done to align with the requirements in the standard to discount cash flows on a post-tax basis. And it aligns it nicely now with IFRS 13, which is good because it's supposed to be fair value. Yes, right. <laughs> so. exactly. Fabulous. Well, like I said, I feel like I need a footnote in the standard now from, <laughs> from Ruth Greedy. <laughs> Not that it's gone to my head or anything. Any major transitional provisions people need to know about and when do those amendments apply? Well, all of the amendments that we've talked about are effective for annual periods beginning on or after the 1st of January 2022, although earlier adoption is permitted. The transitional provisions are not straightforward for all of them. We've already discussed the transition requirements for the amendments to IS-16, but let me share a few details on the IS-37 onerous contract amendment, because that's the other uh, substantive change. So for that amendment, an entity should apply the amendments to IS-37 to contracts for which it has not yet fulfilled all of its obligations at the beginning of the annual reporting period in which it first applies the amendments, which is the date of initial application. The entity should not restate comparative information and recognize the cumulative effect of initially applying the amendments as an adjustment to the opening balance of retained earnings or other components of equity at the date of initial application. I won't cover all the other transitional requirements because it would take quite a while. Yeah, exactly. So, but if you're impacted by any of those other amendments, be sure to, to look at the standards um, for the transitional guidance. And we did bring out when these amendments came out, we brought out an in-brief, which sort of gives you a high level summary and a table with all the transitional provisions. So uh, if you want a quick look, you think you're impacted and you want to see what you need to consider, that might be a good, good place to look at the in-brief on Inform 2. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Scott. As always, very helpful. I've just before we came on air, everyone, I was asking Scott about 15,000 other things I wanted him to record on the podcast. So he will be back um, and famous again. So uh, thank you for coming. And listeners, thank you for listening. Happy accounting um, and stay safe. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.